0: no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially, no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
2: Hello, Movie Truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif.
1: I'm Anton Batill I'm Patrick Sproul.
2: On the show this week, Ghostface is terrorizing the people of New York in Scream 6. Winnie the Pooh is on a rampage in Blood and Honey... I got to speak to Cynthia Erivo about her career and her role in Luther, The Fallen Son. And on Film Club, another horror icon finds himself in the big city. with Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, introductions are in order. I know, Anton, you've been on this before, but, you know, not with me. So, as far as I'm considered, you are
1: a newbie. Um, so who are you? I'm a freelance film critic and I, I specialise in horror, really. So you big fan of this particular genre of horror? I guess this is kind of the slasher. Uh, no, I'm, I'm actually, the slasher is my, my least favourite horror genre. I think it's probably fair to say that's been true for decades. I'm a recovering slasher hater. I've been trying to watch a lot of the old ones that I missed and I, I appreciate it, quite like what slashers do, but I'd still rather be watching a different horror genre.
2: Fair enough. Patrick, what about you? Who are you and what is it that you do?
3: Yeah, um, I'm also a freelance culture writer, specializing not necessarily in horror, but film T V basically anything gay kind of generally is my is my rule. And unlike Anton, I am a huge slasher fan. I love slasher movies. I, I came out of the womb loving slasher movies as opposed to yeah, I've never I've never failed in my love for that that subgenre. I think it's a wonderful genre.
2: I have to say, I, I I do quite like a slasher. I, I absolutely adore Scream. I played this for my friends on a big projector, I think for my 12th birthday party, which is uh, surprising that my parents let me do that at that age. <laughs> and the other parents didn't complain. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I like horror franchises. I'm for the most part, I like the Scream films on the whole. I'm a big fan of the Final Destination films and Ride Hard for Final Destination 5. Do you guys have any favourites?
1: I think Final Destination, I would agree, is, is one of my favourite just for being consistently great. But I, I think, you know, the, the tricky balancing act that franchises have is that each new entry has to recapture what, what people liked about the original film while being kind of different enough to stand on its own and I think for me the franchise that does that best if you can even call it a franchise is the Living Dead films made by George A. Romero which started with I mean it's an overused term in criticism but um, you know it started with Night of the Living Dead which was a genuine game changer and uh, the other films often made Decades apart, used the kind of zombie apocalypse to expose different socio-political crusades of their times, but they didn't lumber themselves, and I think this is quite important. They didn't lumber themselves with legacy characters. You don't have any cross-over characters at all from one film to the next. You just have the basic idea, core idea of a zombie apocalypse, and you know I think their quality dropped off a bit to the, towards the end, but just they have an impressive intelligence and engagement with the real world beyond genre.
2: Patrick what about you big fan of all the zombies as metaphors for capitalism
3: I like weird stand alone slasher movies I kind of counter to that argument I like the franchises I like Halloween I like Friday the 13th but I find kind of strange little mid 80s horror movies that were like shot in Spain or something like that much more interesting and I, I, I do I do like franchises but it's also the kind of ugly duckling franchises like I love the I Know What You Did Last Summer movies I like bad remakes of old slasher movies like the House of Sorority Row, the Child's Play remake, surprisingly. I, I, get, I get why people are um, purists about it, but I'm very, very fond of that one.
2: I do like how the Child's Play ones kind of just got a lot queerer also. I mean, that did seem to be a really good direction to take it in.
3: Yeah, and I love the the Chucky TV series because that's just kind of like the absolute apex of what was always kind of lying under the surface of like the original films. Because it just kind of completely embraces the inherent gayness of a little boy being obsessed with his doll and then the doll trying to murder everyone and obviously Jennifer Tilly being Jennifer Tilly.
2: Yeah, I've I got to say, as hard as nails as I was as a child watching a lot of horror, I, did, I saw the last 20 minutes of one of the Child's Play films and I, and I couldn't even look at an image of that doll for about 10 years. I was so afraid. <laughs> Anton, what about you? Were there any like really ones that you think completely lost the plot and just
1: became abominations? Hellraiser. Actually, the relevant to today's discussion, I think the Friday the Thirteenth films really lost the plot very fast. They didn't really have anywhere to go, um, and I I lost interest in those really, really fast. Yeah.
2: Well, fair enough. Well, let's see if the people behind the scream franchise did any better. You can join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our CDHQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Scream 6 continues with the survivors of the latest Ghostface killings, sisters Samantha and Tara Carpenter and twins Chad and Mindy Meeks starting a new chapter in their lives in New York City, only again to be plagued by a streak of murders by a new Ghostface killer. So, Anton, we saw this a couple of days ago. Were you excited for a new Scream? I mean, how have you generally felt about this franchise?
1: Do you think it's been consistent? Well, I think, it, I think actually it's been a little too consistent. I mean, like you, I really love the original Scream and it seemed a genuine breath of fresh air when it came out in the 90s. Um, it came out at a time when horror was in a sort of doldrums. And I have liked, to varying degrees, all the sequels. Um, I think it's a very solid franchise. They're witty and they're brutal. This one's actually especially brutal, I think, in its kills. And each new installment feels as though it's caught up with where youth culture and film culture happened to be at that particular time. But at the same time, they're always chasing their own tail. They're trying obsessively to dissect and reconstruct their primal scene. And the primal scene is the first Scream movie. And the first screen movie was itself an obsessive dissection and reconstruction of the Halloween films. And so what started as a kind of postmodern parody of the slasher film has ended up in the sequels becoming a postmodern parody of itself and its own increasingly fixed tropes. So there's the sense that these films, for all their vibrancy, they're just copies of copies of copies. And perhaps this is just the way that postmodernism works or indeed the way that franchise sequels work. But despite the self-awareness, these films that present themselves constantly as being subversive of the genre are, in fact, they're very deeply conservative. And Scream 6 talks a lot about new rules, But it it adheres pretty closely, I'd say, to the old ones.
2: Yeah. I mean, each entry is kind of taking on a different thing in that, like, Scream 2, the sequel, Scream 3, the end of a trilogy. Not that I'm really sure that that's particularly a thing within horror. 4, we were more the reboot. 5, as they called it, the requel. And 6, I think that they plainly state that this is... This is a franchise now, as if that's something that doesn't happen. Realistic. And a
1: requel <laughs> sequel, uh, which is a very specialised form. It is basically the requel was the first film directed by Radio Silence. Um, this is the sequel to the requel. So Radio Silence are now kind of taking a proprietary approach to this material. It's theirs. And Mindy Meeks-Martin, who's the savviest, I guess, of the characters in the film, In one at one point she sort of lays out the new rules of the 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 sequel where no one can be trusted where both legacy and next generation characters are entirely disposable and where basically anything goes this is what she says but it's it's a promise of novelty but the truth is the films have consistently followed a close set of rules and i think all of the rules that she sets out don't really go anywhere it's just like one of the old screen films in every way. I mean, I, I can, you know, we can get detailed about this. Um, all the films begin with a phone call and then with meta talk about scary movies. This is no exception. It has a fantastic opening, by the way. I love the opening of this one. One of the better ones. There's always a ghost faced masked killer or killers. They're always voiced by Roger L. Jackson. Again, no exception here. There's sassy, savvy, self-aware dialogue, which I think is has always been the series' best asset and works really well here. There's regular murder set pieces, but there's also, you know, just as regular, Regularly, there are miraculous survivals always by key characters. People take a lot of damage in these films, but then you suddenly find out that they're being hauled out in a stretcher and they're still alive. And they'll be back and seemingly unscathed, maybe, except for a little scar on the hand, you know, in the next film. I think in the whole franchise, only two major characters have actually Died. That is Randy and Dewey in the uh, Dewey in the last film, and Sydney Prescott played by Neve Campbell. Neve Campbell does not appear in this. Really, entirely to do with production issues. She didn't feel that she was being paid enough as a central character in this franchise. But she's not dead. They haven't killed her off. She's very much alive, and I'm sure that if they can negotiate her contract better next time, they'll bring her back. You always have a convoluted final act unmasking, uh, where typically the killer or killers are motivated by family connections or fandom or. Both, and you know, I'm I'm not going to spoil. I'm not going to go into any specifics. But in all the six Scream sequels, and possibly you'll disagree with this, I mean, but I found in all of them, apart from the, the the very first film, it's very hard to care about who done it. It doesn't really matter. When Mindy suggests that anyone could be the killer, she's she's actually laying out the truth. It could just be anyone, and therefore it doesn't matter who it is. All the all these tropes are here. They're all in the new screen, just as they've been in all the previous screams. What is genuinely new, of course, is the New York setting, which riffs off Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, which we'll talk about later. And a segment of that film is actually watched by a character in this film who is significantly named Jason. And the campus setting is also new, um, except it's new to some of the Scream films, but not all the Scream films, because just as this is the first Requel sequel, the first actual sequel to Scream also had a campus setting, as one of the characters, of course, points out to us. And it's 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 a well-made iteration of the same old, and uh, no doubt there'll be more of the same still to come in even more sequels.
2: Patrick, for you, was just kind of the same old stuff still fun, or or did you kind of tire of it?
3: Um, I thought it was a very good horror movie and a just good screen movie i didn't particularly care for last year's prequel reboot whatever it was because i thought it was it clinged on too heavily to the past by setting it in woodsboro again by setting it in the same house in the finale by you know having the same characters again it didn't do anything new and i think the whole new york setting we've already met these characters we've already gotten to know them like i think i was very, very pleased at the very beginning of the film when they were all in a social setting together and I was like, This is great because we don't need any introductions, we don't need any you know, every all the new characters. It felt lived in in a way that the last one didn't. And I think that the way it hate homage to I guess scream too was a lot more subtle than um the first one. I thought the first one just directly referenced what it was doing, whereas this one I think, yeah, as you say, as Anton said, you know, the campus setting but I thought it didn't, it, was, it wasn't it was a directly evocative of the second film, it just happened to also be set at university. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot more. I thought it was very, very grisly.
2: In terms of, you know,
3: obviously Neve
2: Campbell's not in this, we've got, and they call themselves the core four, the new core four of Sam Carpenter, who is the daughter of Billy Loomis, the killer from the um, the first film, her sister, Tara, who's kind of the reigning princess of darkness, Jenna Ortega, and then the twins, Mindy and Chad. I mean, did you find yourself invested in these core four or, or did you kind of long for Campbell to be back?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I was actually. I didn't think, the. I thought that the one line of dialogue that they put in about Sydney was so clearly like, because I think they said, I think Radio Silence said that Uh, Sydney featured heavily in the original script. I almost don't believe when Radio Silence said that Sydney had a prominent role in it, because I've no idea where she would have fit into it. There was no reason for her to be part of the story. And yeah, as I say, the dialogue that referenced where she was and seeing she deserves her happy ending was a bit I thought it was a bit a bit too on the nose. Even for Scream, I thought it was a bit too on the nose. So yeah, I thought that I thought that the the, the core four, as it were, uh, worked very very well here because I don't actually think I rewatched the last year's one before seeing the Scream V. I. They they barely got any time screen time rather. Chad is in about two scenes or something. Chad is barely in it. Whereas in this one, I I very much enjoyed getting to know him, and I thought that Mason Gooding was very very charismatic in the role. And yeah, I think they all worked a lot more. And I think because we knew these characters, it meant that the the add-ons, the Annika and uh, Quinn were all a bit more convincing. Yeah, I I, I bought into it.
2: Anton, you mentioned the horror set pieces. I have to say, I was very unimpressed by that element. I found by, you know, when I saw the trailer, I was kind of rolled my eyes at the idea of Ghostface with a gun. Because I always think knives are so much scarier than guns. But I actually thought the gun was (laughs) actually the best set piece. And the rest of them, these kind of just human pin cushions and the twisting in the gut that we saw about 47 times. I thought it was pretty lazy. But were there any that you really enjoyed?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, it is is a deeply stabby film. And unlike quite a few of the others, it really shows repeat thrusts. I mean, it's kind of a very, very brutal and visceral, which makes the survival of certain characters all the harder to believe, to be honest. I don't know. I mean, I can't really say that I go into these films for the kills anymore because I've just seen too many of those over the decades and I'm I'm kind of past that and I'm actually more interested in character. I I do like the core four. I like all the younger characters. I think I I agree that had Sydney been brought back, would have been hard to imagine a place where she belonged in this film but at the same time you know Gale and Kirby are brought back and it wasn't entirely clear to me that they had much of a place in the film either they're just there because they are legacy characters and I think It doesn't matter how many times Mindy reminds us that they're just there because they're legacy characters. It doesn't somehow make it magically better that she refers to that and refers to their status. And I think the film would be a lot braver if it was just happy to kill its loved ones in general across the board. And there's there's a pattern established where you know that certain characters simply are not going to die and you're going to be right. You know, it's just, that's, and I, I think that might mean that in subsequent sequels that changes. But if we really had to go through so much of this favoritism, uh, this playing favorites with characters to get to a point where, you know, even where Dewey died, it took like like six films, I took five films before Dewey died. And I do see that as actually a real, a real problem because the, the, the film's don't seem to know how to move on. And this film, I mean, it even counts down through all the previous Scream films back to the original. And it has an ending which structurally is quite, well, certainly in location is quite similar to the ending of Scream 2. And the amount of verbiage and sneering m- mustache twirling that we get at the end where everything is revealed but there there is a lot of exposition required to explain why these characters are doing what they're doing, and none of it really amounts to a hill of beans. All that you really care about is how you got there and seeing the characters interact. I mean, what makes the the characters so likable is the dialogue. The strength of these, of all of these films, is the scripts. Not just the, the meta aspect of the scripts, although that is, well, it's it's. I find the meta aspect less appealing the more these films go on, because it's the same joke, just recycled. I mean, there are modern references. There were references to, here to Letterboxd. There were references to the... It's like like stab doesn't get mentioned very much in this. Stab is the the franchise of films within a film that are based on the Woodsboro killings, but are fictionalized versions thereof that have created this kind of parallel universe within Scream. That's a kind of meta version of Scream and that, that all of the films after number two have referred to. I mean, here you know that you see glancing references to stab, but as one of the characters points out, and I thought this was a very wise moment. These days, it wouldn't um, it wouldn't be a movie. These days, um, it would be a true crime series that would be streamed on a network.
2: I have to say, you've picked up on one of the most annoying things in this film to be that where they kind of mention true crime and it being on a network, I was like, oh, the spark of an idea of something different we could do. And then it's not, it, then it doesn't happen.
3: <laughs> I, I thought that the, the move away from Stab... At one point, Ghostface says, who gives a fuck about movies? And that's a very it's a very dramatic line reading. And I was very excited at that point because I was like, okay, we're in new territory here. The whole promise of, you know, new it's like the tagline is New York, New Rules. I was very excited because we're not referencing Stab. We're not referencing Sydney and the original films or whatever. And then, you know, an hour and 45 minutes later, you find out that the explanation ultimately Identical to Scream Two, so the irony of them saying that we do, we're, you know we're new territory here, we're not adhering to what has come before, and then by the end of it, you realize that they have done a kind of loose a loose remake of Scream Two that has stuck very, very closely to that formula, so as much as they like to say that they are plowing a new furrow in the franchise, I thought that it, it almost makes me think that I could. Predict what happens in the next one because it's very clear they're going to do a Scream Seven. And if you look at what happened in Scream Three, you probably could try. I think with the references they make here to certain, I thought it was very telling when they reference Sam and Tara's mother, they're still unseen mother who obviously was you know Billy Loomis's baby mama at one point. So it's I think it's quite clear where they're going. Yeah, because they're 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 trying to say that they're not doing what the original trilogy did, but they they are when you actually get into it. And I think what I enjoyed about this film was that it, it hid it better than the first one. I thought the first one by directly setting its finale in Stu's house was just almost like embarrassingly too close to the original. And I think the points that you're making about um refusing to kill characters were good because I th- I think it's I think it's because it's they're Wes Craven's babies. I think when we were in the hands of Wes Craven for uh, films one to four, it felt like there were real stakes, whereas Here, it feels like radio silence are almost in the kind of Wes Craven sandbox and they're a bit scared to to change too much. Like I know Courtney Cox was quite famously not very happy that they killed off Dewey because she thought that Wes Craven wouldn't have done that.
2: And that's her baby daddy.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, And I think with the meta aspect, yeah, as Anton says, it's hard not to become more tired as it goes on. But I think... In general, because meta is becoming more, or the concept of movies being overly self-aware is just getting exhausting, and I have to kind of pinch myself and remind myself that Scream did it first. Like it was way before everything that we've got right now. So I think it's more than entitled to six films and still give us the the references to other movies, the you know, characters saying they're going to do a thing and then doing it. Yeah, I I think it kind of gets away with it.
2: Fair enough. We should get move on with our scores because we've got two more slashes to take a stab at. Uh, Anton, do you want to go first? In anticipation, in enjoyment and in retrospect.
1: Okay. Anticipation three, because I do like the screen films, but I've felt for a while that they're not really going anywhere new. For enjoyment, I would give it four because it was I did think it was genuinely thrilling to sit through. It's very pacey. And then for, in retrospect, three, because it's, it's kind of dull and insubstantial in retrospect. There's nothing to digest. It's just, it is what it is. And then you leave and forget about it until the next one comes along. Oh, Patrick, what about you?
3: Yeah, in anticipation, I think three, because I had very, very high expectations for last year's Scream film. And this time, I promised myself I wouldn't think about it too much. I wouldn't get too excited. Therefore, my enjoyment was, I would actually say, a five. I had the time of my life during this film. I thought it was so entertaining. I I think because my expectations were quite low. But, yeah, as I say, as a horror movie, I thought it was fantastic. Like, it just, you know, this Ghostface was completely relentless. One thing I really enjoyed about it was how breaking away from previous films, Ghostface wasn't stealthy. He fully just jumped out anywhere at any time. I think the yeah, the one bit where they're walking down the street and Ghostface just jumps out, I thought was amazing because obviously that is not something that would have happened with any of the previous much more uh, subtle killers. Um, and then in retrospect, I think probably four because I I don't think it's a perfect film, but. I very much had a good time.
2: Oh, well, I, I hate to kind of be the gloom and doom person of the podcast, but I'm, I'm significantly lower, probably four in anticipation, I must say. I like Scream 5. I thought Jack Quaid's monologue towards the end was really fun and I think it was legitimately doing something new was of course slightly worried of how quickly this one was coming out been like have they actually taken the time to come up with a decent idea but two in enjoyment two in retrospect and probably a low two in retrospect I was incredibly disappointed yeah god feel bad saying that I will be there for Scream 7 sadly because I have now been hooked into this but I, I just hope they come up with something a bit fresher. Next up, I talk to the award-winning actress of stage and screen, Cynthia Arrivo, whose latest film, Luther, the Fallen Sun, is about to hit Netflix. So this is going to this interview is going to come out on the day of the film's Netflix release. Um like what for you makes like a perfect Netflix night in movie? Um good snacks, good company, good lighting. Set the mood and then a good show. I mean, are you kind of more of a binge watching person or are you more kind of. I a- binge watch. If it's on Netflix, I tend to binge watch.
0: I'm i not going back and, and saving it for myself. I'm terrible. I want to watch the whole thing. I want to know what happens from the beginning to the end, even if there are seasons. So it's like if I've got enough time to watch a whole season and enough, then that's what I'll do. I sometimes save it up. So I've got like one or two seasons to watch and then move on. And then sometimes I'll just watch the whole season and wait for the rest.
2: Come. i'm amazed you kind of even have time to do any of that because you seem to be so busy and like you- i don't have the time i find it i
0: think it's important i think for me it's just important to watch things i think it's important to watch shows and it, you know it's what i do and i want to see other actors work and i want to see other see what people are thinking and what the ideas are out there so it's just i take it almost as part of the work as well
2: but you've also kind of had such a varied career like in the broadway musicals being harriet tubman you know i love you as a neurodiverse detective in the outsider and now wicked's coming up and obviously there um like is there something that i'm i'm i can't see a pattern (laughs) is there something that connects the sorts of roles you go for though yeah the pattern is the women i play the people i play they're people i haven't
0: met before there are people that I haven't I maybe haven't seen on screen before. Those characters exist, but they never exist with faces like mine. I love their wants, their needs, and I'm intrigued by who they are. So that tends to be the reason I drawn to them. I try not to play the same person twice, ever. In the outsider, you were this brilliant detective, but this is a very yeah. different sort of character. If Odette and Holly met, they wouldn't understand each other. They'd probably be they'd be great together, they'd work really fantastically together, but Holly wouldn't understand Odette and Odette probably wouldn't understand.
2: But with this like background that you've come from being on the stage for like this early part of your career, do you think that changes also your approach to when you do have these kind of very different characters?
0: Probably, I think, because my that's sort of where my training began. I tend to really look at what the inner life of these characters are, I want to know sort of what makes them them, what makes them tick, I want to know the details of these people so that I know them very well before they go on screen. So when you meet them on screen, they're a fully filmed person that is not me. And it's there's someone else I've learned and I've gotten to know this other person. And then
2: I bring them to you. I mean, is there kind of a process where it evolves from like by the time once you get the script, do you have quite a different understanding of them by the time you get to the screen? Does the kind of that work process change them a lot
0: yeah it does I I guess I have an understanding of who they are but I also don't want to inform too much because I think a lot of who they are is informed by the people they are around so I take a lot of inspiration from the characters I get to play with whoever I'm opposite because I think that rhythms have something to do with the way we communicate as well so depending on what I get from my scene partner it will change how I respond or how I speak or how I talk. So I, I will know the tonations of the character. I'll know what they look like. I'll, I'll know what they, how they move, but I might not know how they respond because I haven't got anything to respond to yet. So when, when that comes into play, things start, start to shift again. Well, you don't know where
2: you are until you get there. And when you get there, you are like, oh, how do
0: I interact with where I am?
2: We, with Idris and Luther in particular, like one of the things I've always loved about the show, you know, and the movie is that he's got this very gritty kind of realistic center, even when like everything is so kind of heightened and mm-hmm. you know, really over the top around him. Were you kind of trying to go for something similar?
0: I guess so. But I, I feel like it was written that way for, for Odette to... to... To have a bit of grit and a bit of edge but then there's like this chink of light that comes through as well so it, she's also sort of like dabbling in in dark and light and i i loved that about her and i think that's why i was sort of drawn to her she's a complex being this is how it is and this is how it isn't and i think that's has to shift when she gets to know both luther and the case and her she finds herself in another situation that she has to Approach completely differently to how she normally approach something, and I think that's. I think mean, I wanted to leave myself open to embracing the greediness for Adet for too.
2: You mentioned kind of how the place affects everything, but and like scenes in this film, you're you're kind of in the middle of these really like grisly, yeah. pretty spectacular. I mean, what was it yeah. like kind of performing amongst? I don't want to give anything away, but like that. <laughs> <laughs> What wild! I mean, your imagination doesn't have to do very much because it's all there in
0: front of you, and it was it was intense. Doing that fight when you've got like gallons of water pouring on top of you, so you you can't see really, and you're just sort of like trying to make it through, but you have choreography that you've got to figure out, and you've got to that your heart is racing, and you're like, how do I do this, and how do I get this right? So there was that, and it's cold, so you're fighting against how freezing it is as well, and. You're in the snow and there was just a lot that was going on that your senses were, were being hit by, but there's a real thrill in that too. Being able to handle all the elements was really
2: fun. You mentioned earlier also about kind of playing characters that didn't like typically look like at you. And, you know, I know that Idris Elba recently spoke about how he didn't want to kind of be boxed in by just by being, you know, labeled as a black actor. And have his race define yeah. the sort of roles that he gets. Like, is that something you grapple with, too?
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I know, I mean, I'm a black woman. That's your, that's the first thing you're going to see when you see me on screen. And I love that about me. But I also want to make sure that you, when you see me in these roles, you realize that, oh, black women also can experience these things. So that normally, if you see, let's say a, a Holly wouldn't necessarily have been a black woman ordinarily. But something about that and having had the conversation with Jason Bateman, both of us were sort of convinced that actually this experience can be different to the, to the thing that we we normally see the same with Odette. Odette doesn't necessarily, she's not necessarily written as a black woman. She's just written and she's brilliant. And I liked that this black woman could be the DCI of this police precinct and was brilliant and is written with loads of layers. And that's something that we just never really see. And I try to seek out those roles that are different and interesting and give me lots of work to do and make me learn because I, I hope it starts to open the purview of what black women are and can be and where and when they can be, right down to playing someone who's green. I I think there is room for us to be so much more and do so much more.
2: You've kind of also been at that, I suppose, frontier when it comes to like all the awards that you've got. Like, I mean, it's sort of very good money that you're going to be an EGOT after not too long, but like (laughs) your recognition has come at these times where, you know, there's been controversies about like, you know, representation and awards races and, and things like that. Did you like, do you have a complicated relationship with, with kind of all of those accolades that you've got? I I have I do a little bit, but I mean I
0: think I have a complicated relationship. I think there's always going to be a complicated relationship with with awards and and accolades because of how you have to get them and how different the the field is. The playing field is not the same, it just isn't. And there's a lot more that I have to do in order to be recognised than my other counterparts who, you know, are working just as hard, but there, is, there the, the fields are slightly different. There's less room for us to play in. So we're, we're still having to try to find the roles that give us the space to even be recognised. And even if the roles are there and we've played them, then we have to overcome them actually being seen. And so that's where the playing field is. I can play the same role as a young white lady and nine times out of ten, that role's probably, my role is probably not going to be seen in her's. Will be, And that's where we have to sort of even it out so that both of those performances can be seen and both of them can be celebrated. I think that's the complication. I am very grateful for where I am because I think it has allowed me to do a lot and to, to embrace the different characters that we can play and to share that as well and to sort of change minds a little bit. I think there's lots of work to do still. undoubtedly.
2: And then I'm wondering in terms of uh, the roles that you do get offered, like you seem to kind of be living the dream and have your pick, but like is there something that you just really want people to come to you with, like a genre or a type of character? I need a villain. I need a proper villain.
0: I want a proper villain. Please, I need a villain. I need someone who is a villain, <laughs> because I don't. I tend to get the hero. I tend to get the hero. I think wicked is slightly different in that she's sort of like both. She's the anti-hero and she's and, and the hero in this. It's someone who we've known as a villain who is who is actually well rewinding the story so that we see what her what her origins are. So we realise actually most of her doings are somewhat justified. But I would like someone who is just purely terrible, purely dark. And then we can find the light in between that. But if that's where we start from, it's just interest. It's an interesting thing to play. I haven't done it before. I haven't had the chance to do it yet. And I really like that. And I'd love something that is like a big old rom-com that's funny and silly and that will just let it be really light as well. Like it's opposite side of the spectrum. I sort of like, I'm in this lovely gray area, which is really wonderful to play and there's loads of colors to explore. But I've never had like the darker side of the spectrum or the lightest side of the spectrum.
2: With Wicked, it does seem like you are kind of, you're playing one of the most iconic villains, but she also has a love story in a way. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: It's like, it's weird because I'm playing, I am playing one of the most iconic villains, but (laughs) not when she's a villain. (laughs) I'm sort of playing, I'm playing that bit before. So she is like, it is, it is is mostly light and it is mostly wonderful. But then I I get to play with the darkness in her, but that's not, that's not the main story. That's not what you're learning necessarily about her. Because we know that already. We're learning
2: something we don't know. And I'll just leave you with any chance that after doing a big musical, you're going to just desperately need to get back to the stage and do another, another one. I don't know.
0: I don't know. It depends on what, what's there, what comes to me. I'm sure we'll have those of conversations about what's around and what we want to do. I don't know. I have to want to, it has to feel right. It's very hard to top the color purple. It's really hard to do that. So it's really hard to find a thing that feels as good, if not better.
2: This is now what I'm manifesting for 2024. I'm going to hear a rom-com announcement. I'm going to hear that you're going to be playing a serial killer and, <laughs> and a Colour Purple revival. This is what I'm hoping for.
0: <laughs> I can tell you that there will be no revival of Colour Purple. That I can assure you. We've done it. It's happened. And, I, and now we have a wonderful film coming out and Fantasia's is doing it. So I'm, hand, I'm like handing over the baton like someone else's turn to do it. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much for your time. That was brilliant. I mean, and hopefully catch you on the Presto of Wicked where, uh, with another look, and like, you won't be completely <laughs> sick of I'm having been cool. green. For- <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50
1: pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. to get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Blood and Honey follows Pooh and Piglet, who have become feral, bloodthirsty murderers, as they terrorize a group of young university women and an adult Christopher Robin when he returns to the 100-acre wood many years after leaving for college. Patrick, so this is this is the Winnie the Pooh horror film. <laughs> did you know much about this before uh, we made you watch it for the podcast?
3: Yes, actually, and I think I think a lot of people did because I think Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey. I mean, even the same title aloud, I feel very silly. It is, I think, the beginning of a long line of films, not just within the uh, the Winnie the Pooh horror franchise that's clearly going to emerge from this, where we're going to get like 10 of these by 2025. But the idea of IP entering the public domain and people being able to do whatever the hell they want with it. So it's, it's an interesting idea. It's probably not most people's first suggestion when it comes to what would you do with, you know, being able to do anything with Winnie the Pooh But yeah, it's it went viral, and that's how most people know about it. And the reason, I mean, the reason we're talking about it is because it's going to be a, a, a cinema release, a minor cinema release, but still a cinema release. And I believe it originally was supposed to be like a one-night event in digital available at home. um, But because Everyone just thought it was so silly, the idea of a Winnie the Pooh horror movie, it got a lot more traction than I think it otherwise would. Especially, I think if you just take out the Winnie the Pooh aspect of it, nobody would see this film. It would have, you know, 250 people have seen it on Letterboxd and that would be it. So I think in terms of a kind of absolute bargain bin horror movie, this has got more marketing behind it than i think any others in recent years
2: but did you actually have any fun watching it i mean was it or is it just kind of the idea of it is kind of amusing
3: i i i did have fun watching it i thought it was a terrible terrible movie i thought it was awful in in many many ways but i i think i've seen worse awful movies if that makes sense like i've seen films that are just so completely witless and dull, and because if you if you think about it, it's just I don't think it was ever going to really fail because it's Winnie the Pooh in a horror movie. Like whether the horror movie itself is not good is negligible because it's still Winnie the Pooh. You're still you know if you repl- if you took out the Winnie the Pooh aspect of it and just had masked men attack women in a cabin in you know the middle of the English countryside, that's who cares? There's nothing interesting about it. But you know small things either like like I, I, I couldn't I can not criticize a film. That has an adult Winnie the Pooh whip an adult Christopher Robin with Eeyore's tail. That is just who who thinks of that? How do you come up with that? I I thought it was very very stupid and incompetent in many many ways, but I didn't like hate it. I did not think it was the worst thing I've ever seen in the cinema.
2: Well, I mean, I, I love a so bad, it's good film, I must say. Uh, Anton, so for you, was it so bad, it's good or just bad? I'm, I'm taking good off the table.
1: <laughs> oh, I, I thought it was just bad. I, I mean, you know, so that, so... Winnie the Pooh becomes public domain. You can show Pooh. Anyone can do what they like with Pooh except show Pooh in a red shirt because Disney still own that iconography and will come down on you with their lawyers. And, you know, in fairness, this film, it delivers exactly what it promises because it doesn't promise very much. It's it's a bit like Snakes on a Plane or Cocaine Bear in that its high concept is it's all in the title and it has nowhere really left to go from there. And that title is more a kind of self-marketing meme than anything that's going to produce an engaging original film. Its title combines a beloved child IP with a phrase "blood and honey," which is a kind of metonymy for sex and violence. So it's promising this kind of low B movie experience, which is you know a movie an experience that I often enjoy. However, the, the the problem is that if if you have this high concept, you need to follow through with just basic things like writing and characterization and a thoughtful arc. And it just doesn't have any of that. Uh, The dialogue's all really perfunctory. The lines are poor and don't really have any any kind of uh, flavor to them. And in case you miss them, half the lines are bizarrely repeated word for word. There's Practically no characterization at all, beyond a kind of backstory where the, the final girl, Maria, already has a stalker before she falls into the clutches of Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. And um, bizarrely, the actor who is under Piglet's mask also plays her stalker. And um, I'd like to think that there could be a kind of psychological resonance there that the film might have played with, but it just doesn't at all. It's two people whose faces you never see. And I felt that the the whole subplot about her being stalked went nowhere, like went literally nowhere, but then the same could be said of the film itself, which just clunks to a stop at the end. There's no resolution of anything except the threat, and it really is a threat of a of a sequel. And you know, one of the, one of the problems that franchises. I mean, we're talking only about franchises today. This film is, I guess, the beginning of a franchise because it's promising that there will be more. And, and as Patrick has said, that um, the filmmakers have said they are, they're planning to have a kind of universe of children's characters in horror films. The the problem is though that if you look at a franchise like like say, you know, the classic franchises of horror, like Friday the 13th or Halloween, they start with a film that's at least half decent. And then they tend to deteriorate as there are more, more and more sequels. This doesn't even start at a high, or if it does, boy, are the sequels going to be bad. Because this was, I, I, I just found there, there are a few bits that are funny, but you're not really sure whether you're laughing with it or at it. And I think you're laughing at it. And it's just, you know, very much as Patrick said, it could just have been a straight bad slasher, except that the mask that two of the characters wear happened to be masks that match the the Winnie the Pooh iconography, the AA the a. Milne story that we know and love. And you know, I do really like the idea of horror films taking the icons of our childhood and messing around with them because in in a way that's what horror should do it should take our innocence and it should sully it that's sort of part of the architecture of horror but i just like a few ideas in what i'm watching and some characters that i can relate to in any way apart as opposed to just these flat people that are in front of the camera and that's all there is to them so no I, I i think it's fair to say i i really didn't like
2: it um i mean that's quite an interesting idea that you've put up of like the more people from our childhood should be sullied i mean patrick does anyone come to mind that you'd like to see and kind of twist it into serial killer form
3: well, I know that the Great Gatsby is in public domain, so I think you really you could do something there. That's not necessarily a well. I, I did read it as a child, so I guess technically the Great Gatsby is something from my childhood. Yeah, I I, I I think the Great Gatsby is a more interesting, you know, public domain IP for me because I don't really understand how it is in the public domain <laughs> because it's the Great Gatsby. It feels like it should be protected by something. So yeah, I think you could do you could do all sorts with something like that I don't know what I probably should have researched this before but I don't know what else is in the, the public domain now that you could uh,
2: It's a wonderful life is <laughs> in the
3: public domain I mean that that already has horror aspects to it that's a not you know so but yeah I think you probably could do you could do you know like Clarence the Angel being some kind of stalking you know violent vengeful presence
2: I'm wondering Beatrix Potter may, possibly I mean that that
3: feels like if these filmmakers discovered
2: that, that's going to be an inevitable, um, you know, Jemima Puddle Duck murdering people in, in, in a lake or something.
1: I should add that this isn't the first film that's done this because Danishka Esterhazy recently did the Banana Splits movie, which takes this kind of beloved late 60s TV show for children and just turns it into an absolute horror show. And um, to its credit, doesn't advertise the fact that there's horror coming in its title. So I kind of like to imagine that there might be some, I mean, are there, children now who are fans of a late 60s TV show for children? Probably not. But I like the idea that someone that's nostalgic about the banana splits goes into that film expecting that they're just going to have a kind of nostalgia fest and in fact gets absolute awful robot horror with all these iconic characters turning into murderers. Oh,
2: that's amazing. Before we do our scores, Patrick, any last thoughts on Blood and Honey?
3: I think I agree with Anton and that it, it didn't do anything on, you know, writing character, story coherent arc. But I, I think I, I very quickly realized that and just, Appreciated it for what it was, which was it looked almost like like a group of friends had gotten together and thought, wouldn't it be fun to like do our own little kind of Winnie the Pooh horror thing, you know, just as a joke, you know, I don't know, watch it at a Christmas party or something like that. And I think I kind of leaned into that aspect of it. Maybe they didn't even need to do Winnie the Pooh. They should have gone full like they should have done like you know kind of honey loving yellow bear man or something like that. It was so like divorced from Winnie the Pooh in so many ways, even though you know they had the mask and they had the you know, Christopher Robin was there to keep yelling poo, poo, poo over and over again. But yeah, I, I didn't I didn't hate it I think because it was just so so cheap to the point where it's like you couldn't see what was going on in some scenes. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, they just the amount of time as they kept saying, Why are you doing this? Stop doing this I think it was like five minutes before the end. They're literally, they, they, they ask, Christopher Robin asked that question to Pooh, and it's like, we've, I just, it just, the film insulted the audience over and over and over again. And I thought there was almost something admirable about how much it just, it presumes that the audience has kind of never seen a film before, and therefore we would lap up the the slops that they were offering us.
2: Well, let's get some scores on the slops that they were offering us. Uh, Patrick, do you want to go first?
3: Anticipation, one, because do, do I even need to give an explanation? It's, it, it wasn't going to be good. Enjoyment, I think, two, because I was expecting to feel like I wanted to walk out the cinema and I didn't. And I think that is the bar it crossed and therefore it gets a two. And then I think in retrospect, One. I do think it's always important to note that the three of us saw this one for free. So, you know, there's an element, there's an element of handing over your, your hard earned cash for something like this. I enjoyed it because I didn't need to pay for it. I think if I had shelled out... It's, it's, it, you said it's showing at the Prince Charles. It's like, those, those tickets are not cheap. Like, I would... Yeah, I think I would have a bit more complaints, a few more complaints if I had paid for it, because it was just an awful film.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even need to give my scores, because I just agree entirely with that assessment and score level. Anton, what about you?
1: Yeah, I'd I just go one, one, one. It's poo by name, poo by nature. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Right, well, next up, another beloved figure from our childhood, I suppose, depends on how twisted your childhood was. Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. Jason Voorhees gets on a cruise ship to Manhattan and begins a bloodbath. Furthermore, Rennie and her friends manage to escape his clutches, only to find themselves being stalked through the streets of New York. So Anton, even though you're not a slasher fan, I've got to assume this isn't a the first time you're coming to this late entry in the Friday the Thirteenth.
1: No, I I saw this. Um, I think when it was first released on video in Australia, and have almost no memory of it except really disliking it but i figured that i've changed and i've started warming to slashers and i'm quite a lot older now and that maybe i'd find you know that special spark in this that that had been missing before i should say that much as i confessed earlier i'm not the greatest fan of the slasher genre the true reason why i'm not a fan of the slasher genre is the Friday the 13th films. They're certainly a big part of the reason why, because I, I think they're the slasher at its worst. And these, the, the Friday the 13th films with their their regular murder set pieces, their thin characterization, and their iconic but utterly uninteresting antagonists, they're all about the kill count. And they're made entirely by numbers. You know, let's just say it slowly, that tired title, Friday the 13th, part eight it just captures perfectly the tiredness of this numbers game it's the film subtitle jason takes manhattan that's left to do all the heavy lifting here with its promise of a film that departs from the woodland camp crystal lake to the biggest of big american metropolises but that's a problem because it's a it's a it's a false promise Uh, director rob Hedden had high ambitions for this high concept and wanted to take Jason originally to all the tourist landmarks of New York. He had scenes planned at Brooklyn Bridge. He had a boxing match in Madison Square Garden, scenes in department stores, scenes in Times Square, a Broadway play, and he even wanted Jason to to leap from the top of the Statue of Liberty. I might add only one of those things is actually in the film. The problem was that the $5 million budget, though unprecedented for a film in this series, uh, was nowhere near enough to realise this vision. So instead, what we get is most of the film's runtime spent on a cruise boat, inevitably full of graduating senior co-eds. And even in the third act, when they finally reach New York, uh, most of the locations are anonymous docks and alleyways and rooftops and sewers and diners all of which could be anywhere and indeed most of which were filmed in british columbia which is cheaper than new york there's an extremely brief sequence where jason is seen walking through times square um, but other than that the film just never lives up to its premise and there's a kind of psychological element to this film the final girl rennie is hydrophobic which is kind of ironic given that this is a film mostly on a boat And she's hydrophobic. We slowly discover, can I spoil the film that's made this long ago? Um, We slowly discover it's because she had an encounter when she was much younger with Jason as a child and was nearly drowned in this encounter. So her confrontation with Jason now is actually also a confrontation with her past trauma. And she doesn't really exactly, uh, she defeats Jason. And in doing so is sort of confronting and emerging from her own fears and she drowns him, which is significant because that was to do with the trauma that she had in the past. Jason was actually pulling her underwater, although we think she drowns him. But the last time we see Jason in the film, he's very much alive, even though he's just been drowned. It's just that he's been been reduced again, again to a child. But we know what that child becomes, so this isn't really a resolution at all, and it certainly doesn't mean the end of Jason. And that's the other problem with this series, Jason can't die. At the beginning of this particular film, Jason has been underwater for years in chains and he's galvanized into back into life by an electrical current. And then during the course of the film, he's shot, he's stabbed, he's punched repeatedly in the face by a very proficient boxer. He's run over by a car. He's drowned. He's covered in toxic waste. And this and that and the other, all of this happens, but he just keeps coming because nothing will kill him. And the problem with this after a while is you just stop caring about him as a character. He sort of maybe is a symbol and maybe is a symbol of her trauma, but even her trauma is not particularly engaging. And would have he would have to be one of the most unrelatable villains. I know relating to a villain sounds like a perverse idea, but that is part of the appeal of horror, is that you're You see someone who has bad characteristics and you find ways in which you yourself relate to them and that's confronting. That doesn't really happen in these films because Jason is a cipher. All he really is is his hockey mask and a hideous face underneath that we occasionally see. So I don't think this film is absolutely terrible. I think it's several cuts above the Witty the Pooh film, but I I couldn't say I'm a big fan of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, Friday the 13th films do seem to have... A really low hit rate. I'm not even really a big fan of the original, I must say. I kind of like like the original to see where so many horror tropes have originated, but I can't say that it's a beloved favorite of mine. Patrick, for you, do you do you enjoy this franchise? Are there any entries in it that you've found value in?
3: Yeah, I think I'm quite similar to you, where I I appreciate the first one for what it birthed and the the. And obviously the, the whole, it's actually his mother and not... You know, I, lo- I love that aspect of the first one, which the experience of everybody watching it in a theater in the 70s or 80s is completely different to how you view it now. And I mean, they even, you know, circling back to Scream, they even reference it at the very, very beginning of the first film, where most people think that Jason is the the mainstay killer across all films, when actually uh, it was his mother, Mrs. Voorhees, who was the original killer. So I love that aspect of it. And I, you know, love the, the fact it kind of gave the definitive, like, camp campground slasher setting. I love that aspect of it, but but no, I've never been very drawn to the, to the later films. Apart from this one, just because it attempts to do something different, I was absolutely amazed to see that it is the first film in the franchise to leave Camp Crystal Lake, which is insane to me because that just sounds like I've not seen, I've seen the first three and then this and that just amazes me because how the hell did they just keep <laughs> they really did the same thing for like six or seven films so i i think i give this some credit for at least trying something new it obviously doesn't succeed i also appreciate um you know the writer and director rob heaven saying that he just he just he had ambition he wanted to do something different as as Anton's already gone over he had such high ideas for what he could do here I also thought it was interesting because he didn't just that one of his ideas was the New York set slasher, another was the setting it on a boat, but he wanted to go full on. Like I think he compared it to like Daz Boot and and Aliens, and just complete like there's a big storm, you know. The you know it would be interesting if the whole five million budget had gone into setting it just aboard a boat, you know, so they could go full on with the 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 boat could have been bigger, or they could have done more. I think that would have been interesting, but I think he kind of. Was ultimately the film is shortchanged. You feel shortchanged because it tries to do both ideas for budget reasons. And as you say, the New York we get is not. It's not New York, it's just some dingy alleyways and a sewer, and then one, one seat in Times Square. And
2: crime, because I guess that's the two things. <laughs> that's like the only real marker of like that it's New York. It's like you get months straight away. I mean, I, I, <laughs>
3: I, that was the only funny thing it did, which is when, you know, Rennie runs into a diner and is like, help the maniac chasing me, and she's like, story of my life. Like that's, you know, that's, you're, you're welcome, welcome to New York. <laughs> yeah, literally, welcome to New York. I love that aspect of it, but I think. It would have been so. It would have been quite easy to have like dialed up that aspect of it, kind of like you know, there's so much crime in New York, or that was the perceived image of it at that time.
1: There's there's one scene in this. It's a really bizarre idea. Um, where a pen, which is said actually to have belonged to Stephen King, the acclaimed horror writer, is given as a gift to the main character, to Rennie. And later in the film, she uses it to stab Jason in the eye. And I, I thought about this, and I, I was trying to just work out what on earth this was doing in the film. It's such a weird sequence, and decided that it's it's kind of it's it's an open signifier that the film's more about action than writing, that the writing's disposable, it's not trying to have the penmanship of Stephen King. It's trying to weaponize the penmanship of Stephen King <laughs> against its antagonist. Oh yeah, that's pretty clever actually. I, I didn't... It does have some funny bits. I mean there's when Jason arrives first arrives in New York, he sees a billboard for a sports event. And tilts his head in recognition that there's a giant hockey mask on this billboard because that's his, his, you know, his his own signature. And then there's it has a wonder, it has Toby the Wonder Dog who's as unkillable as Jason. Of course, there's a disco on the cruise ship, which is fantastic. fantastic disco sequence that's completely gratuitous. Um,
2: i, I got to say, the more you're talking about this, Anton, the more I'm liking this film. <laughs> like, I don't know that you're actually trying to defend it, but you're inadvertently making me want to watch it again. I did pay for it as well, sadly.
1: It's no Jason 10 in space, and it doesn't have the crossover thing of Freddy versus Jason, which was also fun. But... Uh... <laughs>
2: We should get on to the final segment of the podcast. One last thing, where you guys suggest one non-movie recommendation to the listeners. Patrick, do you want to go first? What is your cultural recommendation that is not a movie?
3: It is a book, and it is called Shy by Max Porter. And it's actually, it's not out until next month, but it is (laughs) my favourite book of the year. It is a fantastic book. It's very, very short, and it's about... A boy in a kind of halfway home in the 90s. It's incredibly 90s. And um, Max Porter, as a writer, very much combines prose and poetry. And he has a very versatile use of the form. Like, I don't know what the formal way of describing this is, but sometimes he has like sections of dialogue that just take place over, you know, you open the two pages and it's across both pages without stopping, if that makes sense. And it's a fantastic book, was a very, very energetic book. Max Porter is in his early 40s, and he's one of the kind of few male novelists who's writing, I think, today in the UK. I'm not, I don't know, it sounds almost a bit controversial because I think we've obviously, male writers have dominated literary circles for ages, but um, I find male novelists still continuing to put new work out, particularly in Britain, quite interesting because it is a field that's obviously dominated by women. I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, but I'm always kind of interested as to what, you know, a male writer has to bring to the table that, you know, is good. And I thought this book was just fantastic because it has a, he has a an empathy. His his first book was called Grief is a Thing with Feathers.
2: Mm, a wonderful book.
3: And he just, to see him directly extend his kind of almost trademark empathy because that book is just phenomenally Human, to extend it to a young. Boy in crisis was incredibly moving. I thought it actually made me cry. I was very, very touched by this book. I thought it was a fantastic book.
2: Anton, what about you? What's your non-movie recommendation?
1: Okay, I've got to apologise. This is not really a single thing, but a a, a kind of line of work. Um, And it's also not especially new, but um, I saw Ethan Eng's Therapy Dogs recently as part of my coverage of the Glasgow Film Festival. And that was scored by Sam Ray, who I'd never heard of. And that's led me down a kind of rabbit hole. He has two bands, Ricky Eats Acid and teen suicide and i've been cycling through these on spotify for the last week and it's kind of breezy indie uh with a a kind of psychedelic elements and a lot of melancholy it's mostly reminded me of yola tango although teen suicide's latest album honeybee table at the butterfly feast sounds quite a bit like simon and garfunkel and um if you close your eyes while listening you'll imagine wistfully that it's summer and i recommend I recommend the works. They're great. <laughs>
2: that sounds great. I mean, I've got to say, I'm, I've got such rubbish music knowledge. I'm always excited to kind of bring something to my husband that's cool that might make him think that I'm cool again because he's, he's, he's very much in play, in charge of the Spotify playlist around here. So thank you very much on a personal level because that sounds wonderful. If you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Shazam returns and faces the fury of the gods. The rom-com returns with a delightful love story to Peckham, Rye Lane, and I'm speaking to its equally delightful stars. At the film club, we revisit Bhaji's On The Beach. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth in Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Anton Battelle and Patrick Sparrow. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankis.